Uh, good morning, everybody. My talk this morning is called Cast Your Bread Upon the Waters. And for those of you who think we're supposed to be studying the Gospel of Mark, we will get there. Um, but as far as I can work out, I've been preaching for about 40 years, maybe a little bit more. I don't think I've ever quoted Ecclesiastes. So this is a first. You are present at a first. And the reason why I chose this scripture is because the, the passage of Mark I'm looking at is a story of two sets of bread and water. Two stories, both based around bread and water. And there's some interesting stuff that I think the Holy Spirit wants to bring out from that. But let's just start with Ecclesiastes. The scripture says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. And I think there is in that an encouragement to generosity. And you'll see several times in these scriptures from Mark we're looking at this encouragement to generosity. Because generosity is an act of faith. If I give something away, I do that only if I'm confident that God's going to give it back to me. Because if I keep giving away and there's no replenishment, I'm not going to have what I need. So every single act of generosity that we do is a step of faith. It is an act of faith. And I say, well, coming back to that in a minute. So I'm looking at a couple of chapters from Mark. I was saying to Kathy this morning, there are 12 stories in the passages I've been given. So on the basis I've got 15 minutes, I've got a minute for each event. So here we go. We're going to be really quick this morning. Karen said it's going to be like the reduced Shakespeare company who manage Hamlet in about three minutes. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to find some of these things and, and meditate and, and ponder and wait a little while on them. And, of course, Nigel being Nigel, I'm going to start at the end and then get back to the beginning. So... Mark 8:34 he called the crowd to him along with his disciples or his students I love I love the use of the word students in the chosen I think it's got a really good modern feel to it and it does express what we are as disciples along with his students and said whoever wants to be my student must deny himself or herself and take up his cross or her cross and follow me whoever wants to be my student must deny himself herself Take up his or her cross and follow me. And that's, I think, where we're going with this whole, whole section from Mark. So it's two sets of stories about bread on the water. And really what these, these scriptures are about in Mark is what stops us from being these students. What prevents us from walking the way that Jesus wants to. They are, if you like challenges to discipleship what is it that we can learn from these chapters that's going to help us be effective students of Jesus and the first challenge I think we face is that we hold on to our own bread we hold on to what we have because we're not entirely sure where the provision is coming from and in the story of the feeding of the 5,000 which starts our section in Mark 6 there's this wonderful moment where the disciples say, Jesus, what are you going to do about this lack of food? And he says, you find him something to eat. And in that clip that Andy sent out from The Chosen, there's this wonderful moment when they're looking at him and Jesus says, 
Was I not clear? What's your problem? I've spoken to you very clearly and said, you feed them. You find them something to eat. And of course, that's not what the disciples were expecting. They were expecting Jesus to do something. I'm not quite sure what. And if you go back a little bit to some of the stuff that Nigel and Johnny were talking about in the previous couple of chapters, Jesus had given his, his students very clear instructions about going out, about casting out demons, about healing the sick. And I loved that scene in The Chosen where the disciples all sat around discussing what they'd experienced. Well, I, I, this happened, and I, I laid hands on this person, and they were healed. And I was absolutely mad. I had no idea what was happening. And someone else said, well, I didn't understand it. And the other one said, well, it doesn't matter whether you understand it. Oh, no, I need to understand it. I need to know exactly what's going on. It's a lovely little... Um, exposition of what those conversations might have been as Andy said when he talked about the chosen it's not it's not scripture it's just some thoughts around how scripture might look and and I think as such it works very well so he told them go out and cast out the demons and they came back and said guess what lord the demons were subject to us now he says feed the people but they're thinking well you didn't tell us to feed the people so we don't know how to feed the people. It's not part of our brief. Yeah? And, and I think this is the wonderful thing about working with Jesus. He takes us somewhere, brings us through that, teaches us something in that, and then we go on to the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. And as soon as we feel we've arrived, he challenges us afresh. He brings another challenge. And we don't know what's going to happen and this idea, you find them something to eat, is interesting. Mark's gospel is, um, is a little bit different to Matthew's in that it's not clear whether the disciples dug into their own resources or whether they had a quick whip round in the crowd to find out what was happening. It's not clear, but they bring to Jesus what they had. And there's this wonderful moment in the, in the film again where the disciples go to the, the basket that they had, which had nothing in it, take the top off, and it is full. It is full. <laughs> and that's, I think it's a beautiful moment. So if we will bring our own bread, if we will bring what we have, then Jesus can do something with it. And I was thinking about, it's a question, as the king might say, one needs to know who one can trust. Because one can trust is a brilliant way of us sharing our bread. If I put a can in the box outside Paul and Anthea's house, that's an act of faith. It really is because it's faith that I'm going to continue to have provision for my own needs, for my own can. <clears throat> and of course, one knows whom one can trust. One can trust Jesus. One can trust him all the time, every day, day in, day out, month after month, year after year. Am I prepared to be generous with what I have the act of faith that says, I won't go short. Um, yeah, the good measure, pressed down, running over. That's our promise. And the first challenge of discipleship is not holding on to our own bread, not holding on to what I have, but being prepared to be generous with it and pass it on. Second challenge that we see in these chapters is failing to recognize Jesus. I mean, it happens again and again in these chapters. We were talking in our home cell a couple of weeks ago about the, the stupidity of the, of the disciples, the, their inability to see what's going on. 
and how that's an encouragement. I loved it when Daphne says to the Duke, you don't have to be perfect to be loved. Isn't that brilliant? Isn't that brilliant? You don't have to be perfect to be loved. And look at this ragtag bunch of students. Honestly, honestly, if I was Jesus, well, actually, if I were Jesus, I'd have chosen a group of Pharisees. They'd have made far better disciples. But we'll come to that in a minute. Failing to recognize Jesus. Jesus walking on the water. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat and with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. Why were they completely amazed? Because he was walking on the water, because he'd come to them, for they had not understood about the loaves. What have the loaves got to do with the water? What, what's, it's a complete non sequitur. It makes no sense at all in this context. No, it does. Because they didn't know who he was. They hadn't understood. He had multiplied nothing to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. Goodness knows how many thousands altogether. But they still hadn't seen who he was. They hadn't recognized him as the one who provides and their hearts were hardened, it says. There's an interesting theological discussion about this phrase, he was about to pass by them. The best interpretation I've found is that he was going to pass by them the way that God passed by Moses in the crack in the cliff. He was going to reveal himself to them. That was why he was walking on the water. And because of their unbelief because of their failure to recognize him and remember what he'd just done up with the multiplication they missed an opportunity how often do i not recognize jesus how often do i not see him because it's not the context i'm expecting him it's not the context i'm expecting him karen and i are very different in this area because karen is very good at having a broad view of things and being open to all sorts of stuff, whereas I'm very much a man of boxes. And if it doesn't happen in the box I'm expecting, I don't see it. Context is crucial. And the challenge to me in this passage is, where am I finding Jesus in a place I don't expect him, in a place I don't expect him to be? But if I'm going to be his student, I need to be ready for that. We hold on to our traditions. There's a lot here about the traditions of the Pharisees and the fact that this is how we do things. This is how we do things. This is how we know it. It's about hand washing and about other bits and pieces. And Jesus said, no, 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 we've, we've missed that. We've passed all that. We're beyond that. If we hold on to our traditions, we will struggle to be his disciples. Are there new ways of living our faith that we need to explore? Are there new expressions of faith? The saddest part of all our history in the church has been this idea, whatever's happening can't be of God because it doesn't happen here. If God were moving, he would move here. So if there's something happening over there, that can't be God. And yet, all through history, we realize that is God. 
He is doing a new thing. He is changing and challenging our traditions. And are we open to that? Are we open to finding new ways of expressing our faith and expressing his faith? We keep within our culture group. There's a section here about Jesus healing a Gentile woman. Now, given that Mark's emphasis is about the challenge to his disciples of being disciples, it's interesting that that in this context, the disciples don't get a mention. If you've got a moment to read the equivalent passage in Matthew, Matthew's account in Matthew 15, you'll see that Jesus there is using this Syrophoenician woman as an example for his disciples to be challenged as to who they think the gospel's for. So it's interesting in Mark that Mark is just about Jesus and the woman. However, whichever way you look at it, the question is, are we prepared to look outside our wasp, our white Anglo-Saxon Protestant worldview and find people who need loving and caring for? I'm so pleased you mentioned Wycombe this morning, Russ, because I think in maybe even quite a small way, that is a group that's not within our social um, milieu, is it? These are people who are not like us. And what a great opportunity. What a great opportunity to step outside our comfort zone and to be good news to people who we wouldn't normally even give the time of day to. I'm, I'm so pleased that as a church we are supporting that. And I would encourage you, if you've got some time, go and do that i've not been yet i know there's several in our cell group that are quite keen to to do so um but i'd encourage you look beyond our traditions look beyond the people that we know and let's see how we can bring the good news to them at the end of this chapter we have this interesting moment if i asked you to guess where the disciples are when this story takes place where would you think They're in a boat, yes, in Galilee, in a boat. And there are lots of boats in this book. Um, Johnny talked last week about some stuff in a boat. And it's interesting, remembering that this section we've looked at comes after that. That was the moment where the storm blew up, and they went to Jesus and said, don't you care? And Johnny's point was, of course he cares, of course he cares. In this chapter we read, the wind was against them. They didn't know what was happening. Jesus came and calmed the storm. And then the third time, where we've again got water, they're on the boat, and the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. (laughs) I mean, honestly, what are these people like? The very most essential thing, and they've forgotten to bring it. I mean, really, what a group. (laughs) Except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus said, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed with one another and said, is it because we have no bread? So once again, they're in a boat. Once again, Jesus is challenging them. Now, he'd fed the 5,000 plus the women and children, and they got in the boat and didn't understand. He's now just fed the 4,000 plus the women and children, and they get in the boat and... They don't understand. Oh, was it, was it because we didn't bring any bread? No. The yeast of the Pharisees and the Herodians is something 
quite different. It's got nothing to do with bread. I read a, um, parts of a commentary on Mark by a guy called Donald English. And this is the point he makes on this scripture. The Pharisees expected too much. The disciples saw too little. The yeast of the Pharisees was this expectation that Jesus was going to work mighty deeds of power in order to demonstrate and prove who he was. The disciples, their expectation was like here, as no expectation at all. The Christian testimony is that serving Christ is neither an endless succession of exciting experiences nor a dull round of taking life at its face value. Between these two is the point where ordinary elements in life are invested with divine purpose and significance. This is the reason why Jesus' parables of the kingdom of God are all focused on details from everyday life in his time. Seen through his eyes, all of nature provides doors and windows onto spiritual realities. So the yeast of the Pharisees and the Herodians was this unrealistic expectation that it was going to be bells and whistles and fireworks and glory the whole time. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he fed the 5,000 because they were hungry. That's why he did it. Again, going back to the chosen one, he says, well, I've given you all the spiritual food. Now let's have some physical food too. Let's eat together. Let's celebrate what's going on. If our expectation is we need to wait because we need power evangelism and signs and wonders and all this glory in order to see the kingdom come. And as soon as that turns up, then I'll be there. We just can't do it. We just can't do it. What we need is the spiritual eyes to interpret every situation, the smallest, most apparently mundane event, and see it through the eyes of an opportunity for the kingdom of God to come kingdom of God to come and, re- and uh, reveal Jesus in all his glory. So these are some of the challenges to discipleship. What, what do we make of the disciples themselves? Now, you may think I'm a bit unkind in talking about how dull they were, how apparently unable to understand what was going on. What I think we should be drawing from this is that we're all in with a chance. <laughs> you see, I've said before that the enemy tries to help us, to get us to exclude ourselves from the kingdom. We do it in one of two ways. We're either so pure and righteous and don't need God because our lives are all together, or our lives are so broken and destroyed that we can't possibly be with God. Now, it doesn't matter which camp we fall into, the enemy wants to exclude us but the good news is that Jesus brings us in. Jesus makes space for us. And the disciples, well, that's what they were like. I, I got something here. This is um, the, the 12 disciples listed in order of uselessness. Um, and we start with Simon the Zealot, because anybody with Zealot in their name is, is going to be trouble, isn't he? And we move on through Bartholomew. Bartholomew. Anybody ever heard of Bartholomew? All he did was hung around with Philip. 
What's his contribution to the Gospels? Nothing at all. We think of Simon Peter as the top apostle and the best one because he was the first to see Jesus rise from the dead. But let's not forget, he argued with Jesus over foot washing, contradicted him and was rebuked as Satan when Jesus said he had to die, denied him and acted like they weren't even friends three times. Would you really have him on your team? Not sure I would. There's John the Great, there's James the Great, James the Little, there's Philip. You feel for Andrew. When he brought Simon to Jesus, Jesus, look at this guy, look at this guy who I've got. He wants to be your disciple too. Jesus effectively ignored Andrew and prophesied over Simon. Just ignored him. Now, if that was my, me, I'd have been off to find a different career. But he stuck around and carried on. And, and so it goes on. But I'll read you who comes top of my list. The one who was guaranteed to be a great disciple. And that, of course, is Judas Iscariot. He's actually the most suitable apostle. I made him number one in my list because he's organized. He handles money well. He's true to his word. He respects the religious establishment, isn't afraid to go out after dark, and he can monetize the gospel. Actually, he's the only disciple with gifting suitable for the role, and I choose him. Now, of course, this is ridiculous, but what is my point? My point is we're all in. We're all in. And in fact, it's our very weaknesses that make us suitable for follow, following Jesus and being part of what he has. The things that we think exclude us actually are our credentials of membership of this ragtag group called students or disciples of Jesus. So be encouraged when you read these guys, be encouraged. Now, it, I should also say that if you look at these guys post-Pentecost, what do we see? We see some very different characters, very different characters. So be encouraged. It's the Holy Spirit in us that turns our weaknesses into strength, that turns the things we do wrong into ways to be good followers of Jesus. What was it said in Acts five or six chapters in? They've turned Asia upside down. Now, that's not this this group arguing about why they haven't brought bread or quite who's the greatest or should we call down thunder or all the other stuff you've heard. No, because the Holy Spirit within them has done the most extraordinary work. And that's the work he does in us if we'll trust him, if we'll follow him. I, I want to finish by talking about what I'm calling the otherness of Jesus. Time and time again in the scripture, we find the disciples surprised by the otherness of Jesus, by how very different he is. And that's what encourages us into transformation. That's what draws us into not, not copying him, not trying to, be, to do the things he does, but allowing the Holy Spirit to so radically change us that we become like Jesus. Two lots of bread and two trips on the water. How are we going to respond 
to reading these stories? How are we going to respond to seeing what Jesus is calling us to do as his, as his co-workers, as his co-providers? Will we allow him to reveal himself to us so we recognize him in situations we haven't seen him in before? Will we be able to see him in places where we've not seen him before? Or are we going to continue not understanding what's going on? There's a challenge here. The second time he's on the water in this section, Jesus said, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you, not, do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke up the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they said, seven. He's responding to their idea, oh, was it because we didn't bring any bread? As if somehow there was ever going to be a problem about bread. And Jesus says to them, is there ever a problem with bread? Well, I guess not really. If we picked up the 12 basketfuls and then we picked up the seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Do you still not understand? With our human comprehension, we're not going to get very far. We're really not going to get very far. But if we will embrace the absolute otherness of Jesus... His completely radical, as it were, upside down, I would say right way up view of life. If we're going to embrace that, then we will find our place in him and our place by his side as his co-workers. I thought I'd finish with a couple of haikus this morning. These are my short Japanese poems that I like to work with because they are very compressed. So this is the first challenge. If I give my loaf and you give yours, then we can feed a multitude. I, I really like that idea. I really like that idea. If I bring what I have and you bring what you have, I tell you, there's no limit to what Jesus can do as he transforms it, as he changes it. All I'm required to do is to bring Lead me in your paths. May I not just follow you, but change to be you. It's not enough for me to do the things that I see Jesus doing. This, this call to radical discipleship where that transforming Holy Spirit works within me. That's what's going to make a difference. That's how I can be his co-worker. That's how I can carry the kingdom wherever I go. Amen.